Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. When I started working for this family, he was grooming me. He started, you know, just doing little things, talking about, you know, how I looked or what a great worker I was or just these different compliments. And that is not something that is is usually given in the Amish. People don't tell their kids that they love them. They never hug or kiss them. They don't do any of those things. And then I also, unfortunately, uh, developed the Stockholm Syndrome. I was 14. There is no way I could consent to something like that. Right. I was blamed for enticing him. <sighs> he was married with four children. Married men were always after their hired girls. And I could count over 50 girls in my community that that happened to. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can join in on the conversation. You can like to help that algorithm boost it out to more people, and you can leave words of encouragement for our guests here who are coming on and bravely telling their stories. So today's guest, I was so excited to be connected to her from one of our previous guests, Meg. You know and love her story as well from the Amish. And today's guest is from the Swartz and Truber Amish community. And it's one of the more strict ones. We're going to be going over all the different rules, what it was like growing up in that lifestyle and how she escaped and got brought back and then escaped again. She actually wrote an entire book on it called Behind Blue Curtains. Highly recommend. And yeah, she is an expert in all things Amish. She was even an expert witness in a trial that helped put someone away for some SA, and we're so excited to talk to her and get her opinions on all of this. So thank you so much for joining us, Lizzie. Hi, thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad uh, Meg recommended you know, that we get connected. It's, it's great uh, to be on here, so thank you. Yeah, of course. And you've been on lots of different podcasts and telling your story and also just... Um, being an expert within the Amish community. And I'm just so grateful to you for being an advocate and being willing to stand up for those who feel like they don't have a voice. Thank you. And and I think I became an expert kind of, um, it was unplanned, but now um, it is something that I'm really passionate about because before, whenever there were any cases that made it into the court system, they would have non-Amish people um, be the experts. And I think... Um, us that actually live the lifestyle, just like, you know, some of the other uh, religions do. They have their own experts now. Those are the best ones that can explain exactly how it was rather than doing it from an outside perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I noticed that too, when people speak on Mormonism and they haven't been part of their religion, sometimes the details are a little off. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of nuance that people don't realize, yes. especially because within these high control groups, there's so much psychology that goes into it and the mind control and the little ways that they can kind of sneak 
into your brain and <laughs> control you in the ways you don't even realize. So it's really important to have voices such as yourself speak on behalf of those who were also raised in that way. So I want to talk more about your upbringing in the Schwarzentruber Amish. Did I say that right? I feel like I'm getting it yes. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, you are the first one, actually, from this specific group. So I would love to give our audience an overview of the type of community that you are in, some of the more basic rules, and then we'll get into more of your story. Swartz and Trooper Amish, I think, have the strictest rules um, from everything is from daily activities to what you do on Sunday to um, how your kids are raised. Um, everything is uh, got a rule, everything. I always say I never had to make a, make a decision on what to wear because everything was decided for me. Yeah, and so some of those modern conveniences that you didn't have, I know you'd mentioned in your book that you had an outhouse and you weren't even allowed to have toilet paper. So things as specific as that, right? Yes, and that was when I was growing up. Now, some of the more progressive sports and trooper Amish have a little bit more modern conveniences, including toilet paper. Some of them do. Um, but when I was growing up, there was a lot of uh, the Amish families were all making their money off of their farms. They're, they had some cows and horses and pigs and made a living that way. Now, unfortunately, in the community that I come from, they no longer are able to make a living from their farm, you know, from farming. So they do uh, construction work and make furniture and things like that. So I think that has brought in a little bit more money and also some tourism money that comes in. So they um, are able to uh, afford a little bit more of some of those conveniences like toilet paper. And I think they buy more things from the store than what we did. We were, you know, we raised everything. Um, and I think that is a big misconception for the general public and just Amish in general. They think they grow all their own food and, and, and they do some, but not as much as they used to. Okay. Yeah. So one thing that really stood out to me, and I mean, you named your book after it was the blue curtains. And you talked about in your book how people were just up in arms about the shade of blue of your curtains in your home. And I just I need to know more about that. Okay. So I'll give a little background on my mom. My mom um, actually was um, somebody that kind of didn't, um, she didn't like to be told what to do and she pushed the rules. Um, and so she, <laughs> she, she was quite a character. She went and made our curtains just a little bit darker. So they were a little bit thicker so that we, in the evening, we would pull them down. And um, then when a buggy or somebody drove by, they couldn't look in and see whether we had a light on or we didn't because my mom wanted more privacy is basically what she was doing. So that was one of the things. So then she'd have to change the color for that. Or sometimes it was too light blue or there. it just seemed to be she was getting in trouble for petty things like the color of the curtains. Even though it was still blue, it was not quite the right shade of blue. So that's how I eventually named my book after that. It was hard to figure out. But another point I can make is a lot of the Amish communities um, have their own certain color of curtains. And the Swartz and Troopers specifically have blue ones. And there's a community close by us and they have white curtains. So sometimes even just driving through a community, I can figure out who is Swartz and Trooper or who is um, 
a Troyer church or different churches. That is so interesting. And who chooses the color in the communities? It's the bishop, the, the, the preacher and the bishop. Um, but the Schwarzentroopers, that is just an old tradition. They say that they try to keep all the old rules. Like it used to be blue, so let's keep them blue. And we didn't used to use a chainsaw, so let's not use a chainsaw. They just try to keep all these rules in place to, you know, remain in control. Everything seems to be just completely controlled and moderated. So you didn't have electricity or running water. The outhouse was outside. And was there anything else as far as within the home that is different or things that you didn't like the modern conveniences that you didn't have? No refrigerator because there's refrigerators. Some some Amish have refrigerators that are run by gas um, or something like that. We didn't have a refrigerator. We had a pantry and you know, we had a wood stove that, that we used for heating in the in the living room and then the kitchen. That's what we used to make our food. You know, very strict on we couldn't even when we had planted a garden, we couldn't even plant flowers because that was too worldly. So we could only plant vegetables. So there definitely are very strict rules on um, what you can and can't do even even outside in your garden and, and your your yard. I feel like there's just so many rules. You know, we had to mow our lawn with a push mower, like a real push mower didn't have an engine on it. <laughs> and a lot of the more modern Amish definitely have a mower that they can at least have a motor on it. And so it's self-propelled. And we couldn't have a weed eater. So we had to pull all our own weeds. And we couldn't mow too far out to the road. But like we couldn't mow all the way to the road, like the ditch. We had to just go a certain distance so it doesn't look too nice and too worldly. Wow, that's so interesting, just all the little nuances. I'm really shocked about the flowers thing because I, I remember in Mormonism, at least this is what I've noticed throughout other religions, is they praise the flowers. It's like God's gift to us, something beautiful that we can look at and cherish, and even that was considered too worldly. I think my mom had one or two plants in the house. I mean, very conservative, but just as far as outside, yes, we, we, um, were not allowed. And, but they, some of them do now because they have beautiful greenhouses and they actually display, um, you know, large flower gardens now, but they didn't when I was growing up. Okay. And like I said, it's maybe some of it, you know, they have more money now, maybe more, you know, they're able to afford that. But yeah, so now I have lots of flowers and lots of plants everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So I would like to hear more about the modesty standards and the the dress requirements for your specific community. Yes. For us girls, we were always supposed to have our, our head covered with, with a cop cop is what we called it. It was a black cap when we were little. And as we got out of eighth grade, we could wear a white one. And it always, we even had a night cap that we put on at night and we could never just have our hair down. We had to have it up. And we would only wash our hair then Saturdays. And then we could only be like, you know, wash it. And as soon as it was partly dry, we had to put it up so that we, it wasn't um, down and, and people would see us. And our dresses, we had to, you know, they covered us from, you know, the neck all the way down. My mom made those dresses and they had to be a dark blue. We could have green, but it had to be a dark green, brown, black, and gray. And that was it. That was it. It was very, 
and it had to be a specific kind of um, color to it. Couldn't it couldn't be like this more shiny fabric? It had just to be this certain kind. And even our underdresses uh, that we had, those had to be a dark blue. And you know, we couldn't have bras. Um, we had to have mm. our own underwear. It had to be made. Um, it, so there were like big bloomers. If you remember years mm-hmm. ago, like basically like big bloomers. Those were, and we had to be very, very careful on on Mondays when we did laundry on where we hung them outside so that nobody would see them. Like, and, and it was just so conservative on what the men or the boys in the community ended up seeing. Mm, okay. What about in the wintertime? Because you're not allowed to wear, could you wear pants underneath? You, you wore like a, girls wore like stockings all the way up. And I think we could have homemade, um, we call them long johns or long um, pants um, that we want, wore underneath, but it wasn't necessarily like um, snow pants or anything like that. Right. Um, but we did have a, a coat, uh, a thicker coat. And then we had a scarf and uh, an overcap, a black overcap that we would always wear if we went out anywhere in the wintertime. And then we also had a, it was called a shawl. So it's kind of like, kind of reminds me of a poncho and it's really thick and wool. That that really did keep you warm. Mm-hmm. And you wore that, you know, when we walked to school or home from school or went anywhere like that. What about the guy's dress standards? They all had clothes that had to be handmade, and it was pants were made out of a certain denim, like it didn't look like a blue jean denim, but it was a dark one, and it had to have buttons, and um, their shirts had buttons and long sleeves, and they had to be very similar to the color of our dresses, so they could have blue and green and gray. But the interesting part about the men's clothing is that they could have buttons. All of us ladies, when we became teenagers and older, we could not have buttons. We had to use the straight pins. Um, and I think that, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know, the men could do that. But uh, we were not allowed to have zippers, men or women, or nobody could have a zipper. A zipper was too worldly. So straight pins like sewing pins or safety pins? We used a little bit of safety pins, but the straight pins is what we would use, like to put our. Um, we had like a cape that we put over in a in an apron, yeah, and it was straight pin, and you figured out how to put them in where they wouldn't poke you all yeah. day. I mean, sometimes you got poked, but yeah, that's what I imagined. And something that I really, really enjoyed in your book was how you were able to capture the essence of the community as far as the social structure, because it seemed like you would have to walk on eggshells and hope that you're not going to make one of your neighbors mad or hope that you weren't going to do something or someone wouldn't do something to you that would just completely cut you off from society, because it seemed like even though they preach forgiveness, you're still branded with this mark that you can't get rid of and it follows you around. So do you have any specific stories that you could tell us to kind of illustrate that side of the community? Yes, and it, it's so complicated, I think, because in, in general, people view the Amish as being these Christian, very forgiving people. But when you come in, when you're inside of that community, 
everything you do gets scrutinized and they watch what you do. And if you do anything wrong, if you're a kid, you get the report to our parents, and then the parents get reported to the ministers and they do give, you know, forgiveness, but sometimes it's, they will forgive, but they don't forget. If you become a person like my mom was, I'll use her for an example. She had left the Amish before she got married and had me. So when she came back to the Amish, she still ended up with this, you know, just like a mark on her. Mm -hmm. She really was very much um, like a, you know, an outcast. She, she got picked on whatever she did. She got scrutinized more than even some other people. And then it seemed because my mom was like that, and she was always trying to break the rules or push the rules or get away with some things. Then people started treating uh, me, I was the oldest, the same way. Hmm. Oh, you know, and my siblings, the same thing kind of would go with that. So my mom, you know, she would get in trouble, let's say for the curtains. She ha would have to remake them, resew them. And then when she did, she would sometimes have to confess in church. And then they would say they forgive her. And then she could be back part of the church again, be a member and um, sometimes she'd end up, I remember she was sometimes in shunning for, you know, a couple weeks to up to six weeks. And it's just different things that she did. Um, but then, like I said, then they would say, okay, the church forgives you. We can go on. But it still wasn't, nobody would forget. They'd still keep watching her. And they really did, um, unfortunately, treat her uh, very different sometimes. And it was some, I think mostly had to do with that she left the Amish. And then she rejoined, you know, so they did forgive her, but... But not really. Not really, yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the stories that was so shocking to me was how your family was just straight up poisoned by one of the other families. I, I was just like, how is this happening? How are they getting away with this? Why is this okay? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, yeah, so that is a very horrific experience and it doesn't really make sense except that there was just so much animosity and uh, friction between my my grandparents that lived next door and that was my dad's parents and my mom and i believe there was you know there i'm sure there's a lot more to the story but um, my dad's youngest sister just absolutely could not get along with my mom and um and we had this system set up where we would have our water pumped from our grandparents to a tank upstairs in our house and it would be stored there and that's the only water we had for drinking or for using for cooking and things and that's one thing that happened she one time put um, something in our water and my mom figured that out and then I think she my mom probably talked to grandma mommy about her and then she kind of got in trouble and then in retaliation she just went and put some pig uh, vaccination in our milk that we would come and pick up daily in a jug and you just think that that like nobody would do that if you just imagine the Amish you're like oh they're all these kind fun Christian loving people but they're not all like that mm -hmm. and and she is you know, she's still living. She she is not like that, um, probably today, but she was when she was a young teenager. She was very hurt. She was involved in a lot of things that were going on in her family, and that was her way of acting out. But 
she's never been held responsible for any of that. And um, I have never, she's never apologized or I've never asked for her to apologize or anything. Um, but thankfully, you know, I was, I was one of the family members that didn't drink a lot of milk. I was lactose um, and I did not end up with any severe health issues, but I have um, siblings that do. And some of it comes, I'm sure it comes from some of the things that were, were going on. Wow. Another thing that I wanted you to speak on is how everything that happens, whether it's an accident or not, is somehow the member's fault. Or if it happened to someone else, it, it could even be their parents' fault. And the incident that comes to mind in the book was a fire that broke out. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yes. And I'm not sure if it was just our family, grandparents, my uncles and everybody that that did this, but it seemed like everything that happened, you, it was because God was watching and he was either punishing you or somebody was getting punished for your sin. Like everything um, happened because you did something bad. You weren't mm -hmm. obedient enough. You didn't listen to the rules. So unfortunately, when I was nine years old, my closest cousins that lived by us, the two little girls, um, you know, there was a tragic fire and um, my cousin who was nine was actually babysitting them while the parents, my aunt and uncle were out in the cornfield um, husking corn. And the girls had been playing with a match and they had some plastic and the, the plastic basically just smoldered, you know, so they mm -hmm. died not from the fire itself, but from the t fumes. And um, it was such, you know, it's just such a devastating, I mean, time we couldn't, I mean, you know, we didn't know, you know, we didn't understand everything. It was my first time that I lost somebody that was that close to us. And to, to add on top of all this, my mom gave birth to my youngest brother, uh, the next day. <laughs> so we have all this going on. And, you know, unfortunately, nobody, we didn't take counseling. We didn't, you know, we talked about it, but they turned it like, you know, somebody did something. And therefore, they took the God took these two little girls from us because we were doing, you know, somebody was doing something bad. And it's very sad when I think about how much, you know, how much I guess, uh, me and my family suffered, but my cousins and their family. I mean, it's just a, they've just, it was such a tragic experience. And unfortunately, we don't know what would have happened if they would have gotten some counseling, just some outside counseling, you know, not just um, not talking about it, you know, because eventually we talk about it, but we have to be very conservative on how we talked about it. And we didn't want to bring up, you know, bad things and we don't you know so we didn't talk about it very much and eventually they moved away and it was very sad it was a very sad time what was that like for you mentally and emotionally and spiritually when you're being told that these little girls died because of maybe their parents sins did that strike the fear of god in you did that affect you in any way yeah, I, I just remember I was always so scared. I was scared all the time because I was afraid I'd do something wrong to cause maybe something to happen to one of my siblings or mm. one of my, I had other cousins. And I just, I couldn't understand why God, you know, why he would do that, I guess, and why, 
he wasn't this love, like he, I never seen him as a loving God. It was just somebody that's up there watching and everything I do gets written down basically. And it can be used against me at any time. Mm -hmm. So that is like, we're not talking about forgiveness there then either. We're talking about him keeping a tally on everything that we do. And so it just, I was always afraid. I just remember I was always afraid. I always had some kind of stomach problems. I felt ill, you know, and all this, you know, later now I find out really what it was. But it's just such a, it's such a sad way to think about growing up that way when you're always scared and you're always afraid you're going to do something wrong or what will you get punished for this time? And sometimes it was just little things. It was, it just didn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, I want to talk a little bit about the education side of things. So you did go to school as an Amish school, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about you, about what you learned there. And then I want to get into some of the sex education or the lack of sex education that ultimately led to some disastrous results. Yes. So, at age six, um, I, you know, was told I'm old enough to go to school and the school was right next door to, uh, my dad had a sawmill and, and the schoolhouse was right next door. So I literally just had to go, you know, less than a block. And, um, I went to school and my had two older cousins, uh, that were, and one of them was in my, my grade, my first grade. So they, they kind of told me what to expect, but it was first grade. It was in kindergarten. And that is where you kind of learn to speak your second language, which the first language is Pennsylvania Dutch, um, or Dutch is what they call it. And then in school, you start learning how to speak what we called English. And, um, it, my teacher, um, I called her name, named her Bertha in the, in the book, mm -hmm. but, um, she was very strict, um, very strict. She had an eighth grade education. I think she did the best she could probably with the education she had. And she's in a one room schoolhouse. And I remember at some years we had up to 30 students. I mean, it was a large school and there were some kids in there that she definitely had some some issues and she was all by herself. And what she did is she had like the seventh and eighth graders, they would help with the younger students. We learned reading, writing, arithmetic, we didn't call it math, and English, a little bit of English, absolutely no science or history in the Amish school where that I grew up. Now there are some other schools that have a little bit more, but that's all we did. Absolutely no history. And in some of the books that we had, we had a small library in the back. Those were all books that had to be approved by the school board. So there were very limited on books that we could read. And some of the books, even like the dictionaries would have words blacked out. So we couldn't read it. So it was, everything was controlled on what we could see and what we could read and what we could have at home. Now I was a reader, so I read all kinds of books um, and tried to learn. And I did, you know, have my mom would take us to the library sometimes too. That was a public library and we got some books that way too. But it was, it was such a controlled environment on what you can learn um, and what you can't. Um, although I'm grateful for, you know, some of the things that I learned, like, you know, it's, it, it's really good to get some of those basics in, but 
at eighth grade, you were done. That was it. You could not go to school any longer. Um, you were then expected to um, go help on the farm or help other families. And in that time, in, in first through eighth grade, there is absolutely no sex education at all. There's just nothing. I mean, I can't even think of anything that would even come close to even just the basic body parts or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nothing. I mean, and even the words for our own um, body, there weren't even words for everything or it was in a, in a, like a different word. Like it wasn't used correctly. Hmm. Nobody talked about it that, you know, all of a sudden us girls would get our period. I just, I, didn't, I was like, mom, I said, I don't know what's going on. I didn't know. I thought, you know, and she's like, oh, you know, this is what you do. And we, we had to have, we had home um, things that my mom used. We couldn't even use tampons or pads or anything like that. I mean, it was all things that my mom had. And um, it was just such a, and then one of the things, and I think I talked about it in the book that I is still practiced quite a bit among the Schwarzenegger Amish is when you actually have your period, then you were not supposed to go without shoes on. So in the summertime, all us kids would run around with no shoes on. We had to put socks and shoes on and you weren't um, expected to work as quite as much when you had your period so to me i was like well then what do other like it's already you have your period and you're already not sure what's going on and then you have to wear socks and shoes and all the ladies and you know the other girls that were older than me will are like oh she's got a period you know what i mean you stuck out it was like you could put a sign on your back saying, I have my period. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds really embarrassing. And there was a moment in your book that you showed us a little scene where one of the girls had her period and she asked her friends in solidarity, can you also wear black with me so I'm not the only one? And then some people didn't do it. And then you all kind of got made fun of. I was like, oh, that's so sad. Yeah. It's, and it's things like that that... <sighs> There's just so much going on in the community that you're on a, you know, like an outsider would just wouldn't know because you're not going to see that when you go to their house to buy produce or go to a farmer's market. Um, often, you know, the men are there and they're usually very outgoing and their English usually is better. And if you um, meet some of the ladies, you know, they're wonderful. They're talkative, you know. Um, you never think that what is all going on underneath it's, mm -hmm. it's like, cause there's, they can put up such a good front and make it all look nice because they are trying to sell products and, and bring some money in sometimes, you know, baked goods and things like that. Yeah. One of the things I also noticed from your book was sitting around the dinner table, the children aren't allowed to speak unless they're spoken to. So it's things like that, that even your speech is controlled. Yes, it is. It was very, very strict. The man is, he is the head of the house. I mean, he, you know, really has whatever he says goes. Um, and if you are a child up until, let's say for me, I was under my dad's authority um, until I got married, you know, then if I got married, then I would have be under my husband's. He was the one that whatever he, you know, he has the last word. So I tell people one good example to know how 
how controlled and how uh, much discipline Amish children get is you watch them when they're out in public. When when you see somebody out in public, Amish kids are always extremely well behaved. The women are always walking behind the men. The men are going first. They usually pay for the bill. They they do most of the talking. Those children and those women are obedient in public because of everything that has happened at home already. And I'm talking about these children have been um, taught from before they even get to walking. I mean, before they're toddlers, kids are beaten and mm. believed to, they, they they have to learn to obey. And, and they unfortunately do use some of those books that are horrible. And I have seen it. I have seen kids, you know, they're still in their high chair and they learn to be obedient one way or another. And they, they use all kinds of, some people are much harsher than other people, but I've seen, um, all kinds of objects used on kids. And one of the other things they use is food. They they use food as a uh, punishment. If you do not listen and you were disobedient, I've seen it in church. People would make their kids sit there after church and they were not allowed to have food. So there's just so many ways of controlling the kids and getting them to listen and to break. They want to break their spirit is what they want to do. <laughs> and you know, it's just such a, it's such a sad thing to see when you, when you just want to look at the Amish as this whole wonderful community and the kids are so obe obedient. But I always say, just remember what happened before they got there. They didn't, a child isn't just naturally going to be that obedient. Yeah, they're afraid. Mm -hmm. They're afraid. And something that kept coming up in your book as well. So it's like the one thing I just there's so much good stuff in your book. So I'm just going to bring it all up. <laughs> one thing that I really noticed is because of the strict obedience and because of the fear that is put into these children to obey anything the parents say, it's also another reason why it creates this perpetrator's paradise because you're too afraid to say no to something. And also without the sex education, you don't even really understand what's going on. And it seems like you you know something's wrong, but you don't really know how to articulate it. You don't know what, like you said, your own anatomy. You don't even know how to explain what's going on to you. You know that you don't like it, but you're also too afraid to push back. And so I know that that had happened to you at a really young age. And then again, when you were older and it seemed like it just kept following you and from what I was reading, you were too afraid to really make a change or to push back on that. Yes. And I, I do believe it's, yes, it's predator's paradise because there is, you know, there's no outside, there's no social worker at school. There's no um, counselor, anybody at school and your education, um, and then you're so limited on your vocabulary and, mm -hmm. and you don't know how to even um, use certain words. And I think what often happens is if you get abused at a very young age, as a very young child, I mean, I, I have no memory of not being uh, abused. Um, that's the only memory I have. Yes, there was good times, but that's the only thing I ever knew. And then I was always threatened and I was always afraid. So then I didn't speak them up and I didn't share, you know, I didn't share with my story of even being abused as a child until years and years later. And then I realized that 
my only sister had the same, you know, similar experience, but we never talked about it back then. And so then I think as I was growing up, and so I was already groomed and, um, you know, to do whatever, whatever your, um, like, you know, my uncles told me to do, I could not figure out how to say no. Um, the, you know, so that by the time I got to 14, when I was working for this Amish family, I didn't know how not to do some of the things that, that uh, he wanted to or asked because I was already, I had already been a victim for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just trying to stay out of trouble. And, you know, the unfortunate part is I did eventually say no. Um, I don't, I, I only talked about my book very briefly. There's much more that I didn't write about, um, about my dad and that I ended up um, telling my dad no. And that was coming from, I think, just, I just had enough. I was like, I'm not, I'm not a, a piece of property. I'm not going yeah. to keep, you know, and, and I think he was very shocked and he never tried um, to do anything um, ever um, after that. And, you know, had there been something when I was younger, I don't know. There's, you know, there's only so much that I can remember just from so much trauma. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that. I know that you are a survivor's advocate, which is why we discussed that we would bring this up today. And I wanted to make sure you were comfortable before we even started recording. And one of the things that I really wanted you to touch on and give words to was the grooming aspect, because a lot of people don't even understand what's happening to them is abuse, because the the predator is giving them love bombing and words of affirmation and all these things that make them feel safe even though it's not safe and that's something we haven't really discussed yet on the channel and you described it so beautifully in your book and so i i wonder if you could speak to that a little bit as far as some of the tactics that these predators use to prey on these kids Yes. So in my case, um, you know, it didn't start right away when I started working for this family. Um, He started, you know, just doing little things um, and talking about, you know, how I looked or what a great worker I was or just these different compliments. And that is not something that is is usually given in the Amish. You don't Mm -hmm. have um, you just don't, people don't tell their kids that they love them. They never hug or kiss them. They don't do any of those things. So, uh, my abuser knew exactly what he was doing. He was, he was grooming me. And then I also unfortunately, uh, developed the Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. which is also, I talked about a little bit in the book. It does not get talked about very much, but I think it's, it's something that's so hard for people to understand. Um, and I definitely had to study that and figure out how, you know, how that all played in and how I got to the point where, you know, why didn't I tell my mom after the first time? You know, why did I let it happen? Um, thanks to my diary, you know, I have at least, um, I think, 26 times that I have it written in my diary. Yeah. Um, and I know that that was thrown back and used against me. Uh, community members uh, actually, yeah 
made a joke and called it the, the you know they're like well there's no way you can rape somebody 26 times <sighs> well you and i both know that unfortunately there's victims out there that get raped that many times probably in a month i mean you know what i mean that mm -hmm. there is so so many more the community also still i think can't wrap their mind around is when it is a grown man and I was 14, there is no way that I could consent to something like that. Right. You know, you know, I, I was blamed for enticing him. Mm -hmm. there, there, you can't, you can't when you're, you know, that old, that age, that, that many years difference, you just, there's no way I can give consent. And even if I did, it's still it's still wrong. Right. And, and people forget he was married with four children. <laughs> right. And you were living in his home. He was your employer. There's so many levels of authority here that you didn't feel like you had a choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And so because of those two factors that you brought up that I was an employee and they could charge him because um, he was my employer. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, the statute of limitations would have um, probably been out. I don't remember exactly how it all fell. Um, but, you know, he, he got 10 years probation and 45 days in jail. I mean. Ridiculous. Yeah. And he did not have to register as a sex offender, which was Ugh. one of the things that I was so disappointed in because he is still an Amish deacon. So he has access to all kinds of kids and grandkids. And yes, they, you know, don't think that he has, a, you know, violated probation or done anything. I don't know if that's true or not. I mm -hmm. don't know. I hope he hasn't. But And I do want to get more into the court case in a little bit. First, I want to talk about the ramifications when you did finally tell someone within your community or, in fact, I may, I may have it wrong. Wasn't it that word just got around and then they just started blaming you for being a mistress and calling you all sorts of horrible names for this happening to you? Yes. And I think it was a combination. I'm, I'm not exactly sure if it was a combination of my mom and my sister kind of figuring out that there was something wrong with me. And my mom kind of, you know, pushed and asked. And I did eventually say that I don't want to go there. And then we had this incident where after I stopped going there, the husband and wife came over to my mom and dad's house one evening and they told me to go upstairs they needed to talk and then sometime during the the evening um they my mom came and brought me and my mom and dad and his wife they were all sitting at a table and he basically tried to apologize and i think that was trying to keep a me from probably reporting or whatever I was going to do or talk to anybody. And they asked, you know, that I don't talk about it from then on that he was going to get in trouble in church. And then nobody can talk about it after that. And what he also did is there had been a neighbor that walked in to the barn where we were at and um, he, w I think he wasn't sure what he had seen. So uh, my abuser went and reported 
to the preachers quick or confessed so that he would get less punishment rather than waiting for another community member to to tell on him. So yeah, he got six months of shunning or six, I'm sorry, six weeks of shunning. And then nobody was supposed to ever talk about that again. Nobody. Yeah. And then I, yes, then I was just branded this, yeah, whatever you want to call it, I, that I enticed him, that I, you know, ask for this. And then that's eventually when my mom just, I think she couldn't, she didn't know how to handle it. And she asked me to leave and she found me a non-Amish home for about six months. And there I was just exposed to more things from the outside world I wasn't prepared for. Wow. Yeah, there's a scene where your mom just wakes you up in the middle of the night and she's like, hey, you're going now and just leaves you in a field to wait for someone to pick you up. And you were there all night and you're hungry and no one comes and you're just kind of looking around like, um, okay, now what? And then you get to that woman's house and she immediately says, yeah, you can't stay here anymore. And you are just shuffled from house to house to house. And I'm just thinking as I'm reading, I'm going, oh, my gosh, she can't catch a break. She she got out and you would think that everything would be great. But then one thing after another keeps happening. Yeah. And I think I was, you know, one was I don't blame them either. You know, I I was only 15 years old, so I'm not sure that they leak. They didn't want to be responsible for me um, because of the age. And I was just so unprepared. I just, I had never used a microwave. I didn't know how to do certain things, you know. Um, and you're just you know, the sound, the refrigerator, everything was just so different and so foreign. Mm -hmm. Okay. So since the family didn't want to keep me at their home, she said she would buy me a ticket, put me on a Greyhound bus and sent me to my aunt and who was non-Amish. And because of lack of communication, I got to this city in Michigan my aunt was not there. I don't even know for sure if she knew when she picked me up. And I ended up spending all day tr around the train station or the bus station. And I eventually, yeah, I thought I met this lady at the gas station where I was trying to use the phone because we didn't have any cell phones then. And her husband offered to take me to get some food, which I thought that would be safe. And it was, yeah, I was this close to getting sex trafficked. And I did not realize until later when I read, I was reading my, or doing some of my things in my diary. And I was like, oh my goodness, I could have easily been taken. Nobody would have probably ever seen me again. Um, Cause I don't know how anybody would attract me, how, you know, so I am, so grateful. And I know that um, God always, he, he had a plan. I said, I must have had a whole bunch of angels because they have had to rescue me from many, many situations already. And, and, you know, very grateful that they did. Right. And this wasn't even speculation. He literally took you in a truck somewhere, met up with another guy, and they were sizing you up saying how much they could get for you. I mean, this was clearly something that was about to happen and somehow you fought back and you're like no my aunt's coming or whatever you were able to say to get them to change their mind but the thing that kills me is 
you gave them your phone number and then I want you to tell tell everyone why that came back to bite you. Yes. So I, you know, and I, I don't remember exactly how everything went when, when I was at this house with these two guys, but I know that I promised them that I would give them my aunt's phone number so that I just need like that I was going to go there and I said, then they could get a hold of me. And if I wouldn't work out, I would get, I think that's how I convinced mm. them that if I gave them a phone number, then they would be able to uh, like get a hold of me later. So what happened is eventually, I mean, I think it was about midnight that night till I eventually got picked up um, by my aunt. And I think it was her friend and they went back to the house and then within a couple of days they started calling and then well my aunt said well who's calling you you know and i'm i know that they had the best of intentions for me too and they were just asking to check on me and then eventually um you know they kept calling and however it all was and i had actually not used my real name and that's what initially i think my aunt and uncle were suspicious because they were asking for i can't remember what name i gave but i didn't give the i didn't give my um my legal name mm -hmm. but eventually they said that okay they're going to take me back to the bus station i'm going to go back they i can't stay there and what the mistake that I made is I told the this guy on the phone that, okay, I can't stay here anymore. I'm going to go back. And when I got to the bus station, my aunt and uncle, and I don't know what they all figured out or knew, but they stayed right there till I got on the bus. And as soon as I was on the bus and I walked back to sit down, I looked out and they th those two guys were standing right by the bus. <sighs> So I moved over to hoping that they like, cause I didn't know if they would come up onto the bus. I didn't know what the rules were, but they didn't. But the next bus stop we got to, they were there again. <gasps> yeah. I did not get off of the bus. I didn't. And I did make up my mind is if they do start coming up, I would talk to the bus driver or yeah. something and say, but I could not, I mean, what a scary situation. What if they would have come, yeah, onto the bus? I don't even know what the bus driver at that time, if they, what they would have done, mm -hmm. you know? Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. I had, yeah. So when I came back to Minnesota again, I did attend um, high school for a little bit. But it was just so difficult. You know, you, you only have the eighth grade education and you know, a new environment and going to high school. It was just, it was really difficult. But I had wonderful people that ended up taking me in and helping me. And um, she is the one that I, um, she was a nurse and I talked to her um, about it. And she's the one that really helped me realize what all had happened to me, that that mm -hmm. really was not my fault. Yeah. And after that, so I'm cheering for you at this point in the book where I'm like, oh my gosh, she has a, a wonderful family and they're getting her Christmas presents and all the clothes and just taking care of her. And then you get taken back to the Amish community. And I was like screaming. My, my husband's like, what's going on, babe? I'm like, they took her back. 
was so angry. So what's going through your mind? Did you just feel like you couldn't hack it in the outside world and you just needed to go home? What made you decide to agree to go back? I think I just, I really just, I was so, uh, I had so much, I was homesick also for my family and I felt like I had been gone for long enough. Maybe people would give me another chance and my parents said, oh, things would be different. And I really did try. I really tried. I went back. I um, became an Amish school teacher and I, I, I tried to follow all the rules and really I actually envisioned myself staying Amish. I didn't plan to leave again. I thought, you know, I can do this. Um, but then, yeah, eventually, yeah, thing I left again. <laughs> just like I, yeah. and I remember at one time somebody talked to me about, you know, why do these things keep happening to you? You know, it seemed like things were going well, and then they things would fall apart. And even at going into my adult life, that kind of followed me. But once somebody brought it up to me, and I don't remember if it was in counseling or where it was, I became aware of it. And I was like, this is going to stop. I am not going to keep making choices that just, I just, like, I'm good for a little while, and then I go back. And so I have really worked lots of years on trying to make better choices. And it's what you're, you know, how you look at life and how you, you know, something bad happens. Okay, I'm going to do better. You know, I'm not going to keep making the same mistakes again. Yeah. And I can agree to some level of changing your, changing the way that you do things so that you're not in specific situations. However, everything that happened to you as a child was definitely not your fault. And you were not putting yourself in any sort of situation. And I hope that you can see that and know the difference. Yes, thank you. Yes, as a child. Yes, I think, you know, I I was specifically put here for a reason, you know, and, um, and, and we didn't even touch on the whole thing. The reason I started writing the book is because my mom was not truthful with me and I don't even know who my biological father is. So I have this, it's just all these different things that have happened to me, but yet I don't want people um, to see me as, you know, this victim. I mean, I, I, if I can get through what I did, I hope somebody else will see it and they'll say, you know what they can, you can, you can, learn from, you know, you know, unfortunate things happen, bad things happen, but I'm an adult now and I want to have others see that there is hope that, you know, I, I survived for a reason. I'm here for a reason. I'm here to hopefully give other people hope that whatever you went through, um, hopefully you'll find the right resources and help and, and people help me along the way. My goodness. Yeah. Mm. Lots of great, wonderful people. And you are a survivor. You are a thriver. And I think I even texted to you after I finished your book. I was like, you're a warrior. How did you do all that? And it's amazing. And now you're an advocate, like you said. So absolutely agree with you there. I wanted to touch on a couple things before we get into your life now and kind of how you were able to create a life outside of the Amish. There were a, a few things that blew my mind. The first is is it the snits called the snits Snits. can you tell everyone what that is i was just like i need to know more i don't understand 
Yeah. Yeah. So when I did go back that time after I was 15, then I turned 16 when I was not Amish. So by the time I come back home, I'm almost 16 and a half. So that means then I can start joining the young folks. And that's like, it is specifically 16 and a half. And that's kind of like some people um, call it on the outside, they call it the Rumspringer years, but mm-hmm. it's, it's in ours, it's just called the young folks. We get together every Sunday night at a um, certain uh, Amish uh, person's house in the evening and they sing songs together, have some popcorn and I think coffee usually or some water. And then during this singing part, the boys sit on one side, the girls sit on the other side. And then um, they will try to, if you haven't had your first date yet, um, you are allowed to do that on your third Sunday evening. So the first time is basically your first time that you have a date. They call it schnitz, and they make this big deal out of it. They ask a two boy, uh, two guys came and asked me if I would have schnitz with, it was one of my neighbor um, boys who was about a year older than I was. And what that meant is that he would take me home in his horse and buggy or take, yes, take me to my home in, in his horse and buggy. So we get to my house, my mom and dad's house, and it's all dark. It's like nine o'clock at night or something. And he pulls up to the house and I get off the buggy. He goes, parks his buggy, unhitches the horse, puts the horse into our barn and comes upstairs to my bedroom where I would have had time to be dressed in my underdress. And the underdress um, typically doesn't have any sleeves, but you have, they make you have a uh, special uh, sleeve thing to put over it once you get to this age. And you have to keep your socks on and your underdress and obviously underwear. And you, you go into bed and he comes in, takes his shoes off and comes into bed with you. And that's, that's your oh, first date. I just don't understand. <laughs> I mean, and, and there, there is a, there's been talk out there that there's a board in between. No, there's no board, but you're supposed to do this rolling thing. Um, and there can be kissing, but that's it. But it's re- absurd. You have two teenagers in bed together after, with no lights after dark. Uh-huh. You're supposed to roll back and forth. I mean, what do they expect? Yeah. Temptation. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And they, yeah. It just feels so contradictory because on one hand, you are just dressed from neck to ankles to avoid making a man, a man lust after mm-hmm. you and your hair is up because it can't be down mm-hmm. or that they'll make. And then they put you in bed for your first date. I'm just, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. Well, and the interesting part was um, I... After I had my first schnitz, then I went to my cousin's wedding in Michigan. It was my cousins that used to live by us, and they lived in Michigan then. And I went to their wedding, or a wedding up there, and they asked me, even though I was from another community, to then do schnitz with one of the boys there in that community. And I remember there... It was because it wasn't my home because I was visiting. We went to his grandparents' house and I just, 
that time I was like, okay, I do not know why I agreed to this. And he wasn't like, like it wasn't, he was a nice boy and everything, but I know that he was like, yeah, I was like, okay. I went out to the outhouse for a couple hours and I came back in just because I was like, okay, I hope he falls asleep. I don't want to do this all night. It's not this schnitz and this um, stuff is not done in every community, but it is really a Swartz and Trooper thing. And what happens then after that first night is if the boy wants to become your boyfriend, he has to ask then if he can come back. And then you can start seeing each other every other Saturday night at your parents' house again in your bedroom. And he can just stay for the night and that's it. That That's your dating. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. Number one, I don't know how you're supposed to get to know each other when you have the lights are all off and then you're doing that stuff. And then you aren't supposed to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And you get to only see each other if you're out with in public with the other, you know, like a church or something. It's not like you ever go out to eat together or anything like that. But I will say that there are family members now or community members in my area that are actually moving out of the Schwarzenegger Amish and going to higher churches where they do not do that because they don't want their kids to be exposed to that. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very sad. And then I guess with that, I'll talk briefly about the wedding. When you actually have an actual wedding, then right. that evening, the youth get to play this, I mean, this I don't even know what kind of game you call it, but you, the boys and the girls go into this back, usually it's in the somewhere in the wash house or wood house or something. And the, the married Amish men get to be in there, not the Amish married women, but the men do, they get to sit on the side and proclaim that they're watching everything, but it's so disgusting. And I remember that was one of the last things that I did before I left. And it's, it's just this, it's this kissing game and it's this back room where you're with one guy and then that guy leaves and another one comes in. I mean, it's just awful. It's just mm-hmm. despicable. I mean, who yeah. came up with this? And let me put on the record, I love a good night cuddle. I'm all about that. And I love kissing games. Sure, like your teenagers spin the bottle, whatever. But what I have to distinguish here is that when you have a community where they have no sex ed, where they are under these insanely strict rules to keep kids from learning what sex is or messing around, and then you have these highly predatory games or traditions that are completely contradictory, that's where I have an issue with it because you are just setting these kids up for failure when they don't really know what's going on. They have all these hormones, all these feelings. Mm -hmm. They're shoved into a room with a stranger for five minutes and people are laughing. It's just like, what is the purpose here? What What are we trying to accomplish here? Aside from just like being silly, but it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I'm so happy that you were able to speak to that and bring that up. Because when I read it in your book, I was like, I need to know more. This is just very interesting. Yeah. It's in those situations, I think often there are many 
young women that don't realize that they were assaulted in this situation right. just but it's but it's like expect you know what i mean like it's expected and then i don't know just to me the most appalling thing still is that these grown married men are there basically just cheering and hooting and hollering and whistling it's like it's just disgusting mm -hmm. so it feels like these games are coming out of these distorted views of sexuality and this predatory behavior because we know, and I'm sure you can attest to this with all the interviews that I've done, it seems very clear that SA is very common and prevalent within these communities. It's it's almost like an undertone in every community, whether you know what's going on or not. And then these games sort of emerge out of it almost like a way to make light or a way to normalize, even though they say that it's a sin when all the predator has to do is confess in church and have a ban for six weeks. And then it, it just continues. The cycle continues. There's really no accountability taken. There's nothing done to make sure that this stops happening. And so it just seems like the cycle goes and goes and goes and goes. And then it comes out in these really weird, uncomfortable games, and you're just meant to go along with it, adding in the obedience thing. If there's a married man there saying, go play this game and go get shoved into a dark room with this other person, you're going to go along with it because what else? I mean, you can't go against authority. So I just, I really wanted to speak to the atmosphere that you're kind of a part of and how it is prevalent. And it's not just a few bad apples. It's something that happens often. And in your book, you even mentioned that the person who was assaulting you at 14 was like, oh, well, don't worry, your dad did this with his mate or his mod. And I'm just thinking, so it's common. It's like a known thing. Yeah. And I will um, say that from, from what I found is every community tends to kind of have, they definitely all have issues with abuse, but they like our community that I grew up in there it was everybody was raping the married men were always after their hired girls that is was like you know and like you said my dad did that to our neighbor girl which I found out you know years later and I kind of vaguely remember I knew he was in the shunning because I remember my mom making some comments about it and I at one time was asked and I could count over 50 girls in my community that that happened to oh. now in some other communities there are other issues like in some of them incest is bigger a bigger problem or um, some communities have more men um, on boys um, that kind of thing but in when I was growing up that was the biggest problem that I seen and what happened it would you know how how do you just allow that to happen over and over and mm -hmm. over again because some families have large families they have you know 10 12 kids so they have a hired girl a lot and then it just it just makes me wonder what will happen what needs to be happened so that this stops happening you mm -hmm. know we, we we keep talking about it and and there are a lot of resources out there but if you keep playing these games and you keep playing you know yeah it's just it's such a sad situation 
Yeah, it seems like the cycle just perpetuates unless they realize that they have options and that they can say no and that they can report it. And that's something that you eventually did. Was it 25 to 30 years later, you realized that you needed to step up and help these children who were still in the Amish communities, right? Yes, and it it has a couple, and you can read about it in the book, it had a couple of different factors that happened. But one of the biggest ones that I had teenagers, and um, sometimes that happens when, when you have teenagers the same age that uh, you were uh, assaulted in, mm-hmm. then it kind of brings it up. And one of the things that um, I have told um, my kids, I really never wanted to to have children because I was so concerned that I wouldn't be able to protect them because I Mm. never, never wanted anything to happen to them. And when I had kids, I was so um, overprotective and um, I, I, you know, tried to be there all the time. And you, and I tell parents, you can't be there 24 seven to protect your kids, but I wanted to stop the cycle of abuse. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my kids to have to suffer. Um, And and just because I had left the Amish still didn't mean that I was going to be able to protect um, my kids. And so eventually when, when I had teenagers in the house and that's when I realized there was a case uh, going on and um, it just somehow put me in this, um, I was a school board member and it put me in this place where I realized that I was talking about somebody else's case, yet I had never talked about my own. I did this process of uh, coming forward and I actually had forgotten about my diary, that I had had this diary and I found it and um, obviously that was the biggest piece of evidence that we had is what I had written in there. And um, my abuser did eventually confess. I think he thought that if he confesses, he probably would get off with even no punishment. Um, But I think that it's in, in many cases, you don't unfortunately have uh, an abuser that will confess. Um, Mm -hmm. But he did, uh, thankfully. And I think with the, with the diary, he probably would have still been able to, you know, get him convicted. But as far as like on my uncle, um, that was out of statute of limitations and there was no evidence. There's nothing, I don't have anything else anymore. So my uncle is still um, out there free Mm -hmm. in the community. And he knows that I wrote a book and he knows, he knows about it. And I, I just live for the day that he will have to pay for his years and years. I mean, he's he's been he's been an abuser for years and years and years because nobody's ever stopped him, and he's lied about it. And he will he will be stopped. I just hope I'm still here to see it. Yeah, and I just can't imagine what you had to go through in court and testifying, and and then for him to get 45 days in jail, it it just blows my mind, and it's so frustrating. But I will say that I'm so happy that you've been able to be an expert witness for other Amish women. In fact, in one one of the cases, the one that you had mentioned to me before, you were able to help get him put away in prison for 45 years, right? Yes. And that was just earlier this year. um, And he was a former, he was Amish at the time of some of this abuse. And then his wife left and she reported him. And and yes, he got one of the stiffest sentences that I had ever seen. And it was a 
12, um, 12, man, uh, 12 people in the jury. And it was just, it was, it gave me so much hope that there is, uh, the wheels of justice are changing. Mm-hmm. And, and the judge in this case was really receptive of, you know, what I had to say and how you explain on, you know, why you, why somebody stays with somebody that's been abused for, for years, you know, and, and, you know, how, how she eventually one day, you know, just came forward. And, um, in his case, the, um, the cycle of abuse, you know, you, you can see it. I mean, he, he definitely had things happen to him, but as an adult, we're responsible for our actions. And, you know, what he did to his wife and kids is horrific. I mean, it's, it was horrible. It took everything I could to get through that case because I had just not been involved in anything that, um, it was just so graphic and just so, there's just so much abuse and, and it's amazing. And I, I am so grateful that, uh, that she had the courage to come forward and she did it for her two kids that she had. That's amazing. And to also sum up, just so people really understand why this is so prevalent in these communities. I asked Lizzie to read this statement prior to our interview because it was so powerful and really beautifully expressed why this continues to happen. And I just want to let you guys know that we always try and upload our interviews as uncensored and raw and real as possible. Unfortunately, because of some of the restrictions on YouTube, we do have to censor some words. So if we did have to censor any of that victim impact statement, it was not because we don't think those words need to be said loud and clear for everyone to hear. It's so that we can have a greater reach and not be censored or restricted so more people can see this video. Thank you. I will just read parts of it. And I won't be able to read this all every time I've done this. Reading it, um, it, it's very emotional. So I'll read some. So um, I said, Your Honor, I am sharing my story with you today because I was shamed into secrecy for 30 years. That secret is why we're here today. Aiden and the Amish community are now hoping that you will allow them to continue this secrecy for future generations. I have forgiven Aiden and the church that protected him, but I cannot forget the children. Your Honor, I am trusting you to send a message that I couldn't, that no one is to blame for their, our APE. I believe you can help me stop the cycle of abuse poisoning generations of Amish children. Healing can begin in this courtroom today if you use the power bestowed upon you to show that mercy belongs to the abused and not the abuser. I need your help to teach other victims that rape and shame are not just a part of growing up Amish. Even the night he raped me of my virginity, I didn't know it would change my life forever. Only now, looking back, I can see the damage he has done. 
And I go into a little bit of talking about the lack of sex, sex education mm-hmm. and different things. And then I'm going to move to a part where I talk about the adults. <clears throat> the adults responsible for me chose to protect the Amish church over the innocence of their own children. The church will deny the existence of sexual abuse despite the number of survivors coming forward. You can protect the next generation of Amish children from this devastating cycle of abuse. My family deserves to maintain their way of life without the toxic of abuse and secrecy. In some ways, it would be easier to stay silent for another 30 years, but they created this secret which made me physically and emotionally sick. Your Honor, I believe that if you do the right thing, we can save future generations of Amish children from the same fate. I respectfully ask that you send a message to Aiton, the Amish community, and all sexual abuse survivors that no one, especially a child, is responsible for their own rape. I understand there are people still in the community today who have been abused and who are suffering in silence. My hope is that you will tell them it is not their fault. Judgment will be served by God, but protection needs to be served by the court. What is more worth of judgment than God's innocent children? Please help me send the message to the Amish community that they are not alone. If the Amish community is not willing to protect their own children, then we will. And to the Amish children, I want to say that you are not alone. I am with you, along with all the survivors here in the courtroom today. To us, you are worth the risk of coming forward. So, Oh, wow. Thank you for reading that. Really, thank you. I am sure that was difficult, and it's just so powerful to hear those words. And and I imagine being there in the courtroom, it was just palpable, the energy that was there and the supporters that were there to be there for you and be a rock for you. And it's just so amazing that you were able to go forward and take a stand, really, and just start this cycle of change because when one person speaks out, it gives permission for other people to do the same, even if they don't realize they need that permission. Maybe it's the hope. Maybe it's just the inspiration. Maybe it's the bravery, the courageousness, whatever it is. You stepping forward is so huge and I'm sure has had an incredible ripple effect among the communities. Yep. Thank you. I think it has definitely, there has been a few reported cases and I probably won't see the impact maybe in my lifetime, but I hope that um, eventually things will get better for all, all the children living, you know, even in women and, you know, young boys living in these communities that they realize that there is hope and there is support. And um, by talking about it, it is tough to talk about it, and it is. But staying silent is not bringing you healing. It mm-hmm. is not. It's. It's. It gets to the point where I usually, um, I don't um, break down 
every time I talk about my story because the more I've shared it, the more I can talk about it. It's usually just when I get to talk about the kids that are still left there. That's yeah. the ones that really, I, you know, I just, it reminds me of why I did it because I, I didn't do it for myself. I did it. I did it for the, for the other kids that are still there and for other victims. Yeah. Um, and I said, if I only help one person, um, then I've helped. And then I've, I've made a difference, which thankfully I have. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Lizzie, thank you so much again for sharing this. And I just want to know your consciousness side now. What makes you happy and fulfilled and how are you doing? Thank you. Um, well, I get a lot of um, fulfillment from really helping helping other victims, helping them go through the legal process. That has really been rewarding for me because I was very unaware of how things work and how, you know, often if somebody's coming forward, there's a victim's advocate, but oftentimes they have very little knowledge about the Amish or former Amish. So my focus is really on the ones that if if they want to come forward, I will stand by them through the whole legal process. Um, I did that with um, a Mennonite gal that grew up Mennonite, and um, now I'm with somebody that grew up Schwarzentrooper, and she has three cases going on. I mean, it it's I feel inspired by helping some of them to see what they're going through, and all I often do I'm just a little side you know, sound bar. Sometimes they're needing to talk to me at times when their victim's advocate is not around, or they'll ask me questions on, okay, what does it actually mean? What is a plea offer or what have you? It's just little things that I've learned and I'm still learning. I'd love to learn more about um, the process of certain things. And the other part that I really hope to do in every case that I am involved is educating the judge, the prosecutor, the victim advocate themselves, mm -hmm. or if I work with anybody else, investigators, whoever it is, whatever I can share, I ask them to please then pass it on and educate others, educate, you know, how, how, you know, how things are in, in the Amish world. Um, and what I went through is very common that happens to others. And then I, um, absolutely love plants. I, <laughs> I have lots of plants inside and outside and I do some landscaping and some, um, work on the side and I love spending time with my kids. I have very, very athletic kids <laughs> that play lots of uh, fun sports and um, uh, very smart kids. And me and my husband, we have a bunch of horses. I get to live with a whole bunch of horses that, um, yeah, I get to spend time with. And I just hope to make a difference. Um, and I have been uh, followed and filmed. There will be a documentary coming out that I will be the lead in uh, wow. probably sometime next year. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I am so happy to see where you are now and that you've gotten your book out there. Guys, definitely go check it out. We'll put a link in the description behind Blue Curtains. And you can also check out our website, lizzyhirschberger.com. Is there anywhere else that people can find you that you want them to find you at? 
I am active more on Facebook, a little bit on Instagram. I am doing a lot of um, public speaking engagements and things so they can find that on their, on my um, website. And um, I am also a co-founder of Voices of Hope Givers, where we have conferences uh, a couple times a year. So all that information can be found. Um, I just appreciate, yes, the, the book is available on Amazon, on Kindle, and um, the soft cover. Yeah. And we're going to put all and any resources that you have, Lizzie, in the description below. So if anyone watching this needs help or wants to volunteer and support these organizations, you can click on those. And we need your Linda Listen moment, your sassy statement, or your <laughs> words of inspiration, whichever you prefer. Well, listen, Linda. I am not going to give up and stop because I get pushback and um, threats. Um, I will continue to fight um, for for the Amish and plain children and women and men and who want help. I will be here, Linda. I, I will not stop. <laughs> yes. Can't stop. Won't stop. Lizzie is coming for you guys. <laughs> no, she is coming to advocate for you guys. And she's coming for the ones who are pushing down the voices of those affected by these communities. That's amazing. Thank you again. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Thank you so much for having me. And um, I can't wait to keep following what you're doing. You're, you're doing amazing, um, amazing stories. I'm, I feel so... Uh, grateful that I, I did get to catch your channel and I'm follow your stories. So. Oh, thanks so much. Well, we always appreciate you coming on. And guys, we wouldn't have this channel if it weren't for people such as Lizzie who are willing to come on and share their stories. It takes a lot. It's really difficult. So please leave some words of encouragement below for Lizzie and anything else that you want to add to the conversation. And if, if you want to support the channel even more, we just got merch. So oh. you can find that at cultsofconsciousness.com. We have some a whole bunch of different types of t-shirts and water bottles, things like break the silence, break the cycle. I'm sorry for what I said when I was in a cult, apostates <laughs> unite, lots of good stuff over there. So go check it out. That would mean a lot. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash cults to consciousness as well. And if you like this video, we're going to add some more down here for you to check out. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with their visibility. You can also find me on social media at cults to consciousness or reach out by email at cults to consciousness at gmail.com.